You're listening to a podcast from 702. 702. The Good Scientist. Dr. Chris Smith, lovely to chat to you again. Good afternoon. You know, I'm not sure what I'm grappling with more di- with greater difficulty, where the lost socks go or why South Africa has National Lost Sock Day. I mean, what is that all about? <laughs> Actually, the answer is quite simple to this question, which is if you have a problem with lost socks and one-legged or even three-legged men and women in your house, then you should do what one mathematician pointed out to me when discussing the probability of lost socks, which is you just buy 10 pairs of socks that are all the same colour. You'll never have a lost sock ever again. But then it will not make for an interesting, exciting dressing day (laughs) once in a while, Chris, because if you only have, I don't know, black socks all of your life, then that's, you know, one one needs to have a little bit of splash of colour and just uh, excitement in your uh, sock uh, communication. Well, this is true. But at the same time, it does mean lower blood pressure and uh, fewer days where you run around thinking, is there... Is there a sort of sock thief? But someone did did actually do an experiment on this, and they do end up in some extraordinary places, including often inside your duvet covers. And the reason is that there are lots of lots of ways that socks can organise themselves uh, and get tangled up, and they often end up down the inside of the duvet because once they get in there, they can't get back out again. So it's sort of how entropy works. And so always check the end of your duvet cover because you may find the odd stray lost sock is lurking down there. I'm sure John Pellman is listening and that's where he'll be checking this afternoon. We already have a bunch of calls waiting for you, Chris. Let's go straight to Matthew in Pretoria. Matthew, good afternoon. What's your question for the Naked Scientist? Good afternoon. Hi, good afternoon. Uh, yeah, my question is, um, look, we've just had these massive floods now uh, in KZN and normally with massive floods, there'll come a time where there's massive droughts as well. And we already know that South Africa is a, sort of like a water-starved country. We, we don't have a lot of fresh drinking water available. So I just wanted to know how viable is a desalination uh, to make potable water? And would it be viable to set up the desalination plants for the coastal metros for drinking water purposes and so, so sort of like take a bit of the pressure off on the water supply? I know that the city of Cape Town was uh, considering that when they were counting down today's zero, of course, and mm. the expense was quite extraordinary, particularly consumption of energy. So, Chris, how would you answer Matthew's question? That is precisely the point. You could pretty much do anything you want, but there's a cost attached to it. And the cost with desalination is very, very high indeed, because water has a very high specific heat capacity. In other words, you have to put a very large amount of energy into water to raise its temperature by one degree C. And to get it to the point where you can push the temperature above boiling point and boil off the the clean water and leave the salts behind, or push the salts effectively uphill, up a chemical gradient with reverse osmosis, it amounts to the same thing. You're basically pushing water away from the things that are dissolved in it. It's very energy intensive. And with energy comes a carbon footprint. And at a time when we're trying desperately to reduce our carbon footprint, burning off more energy, unless you do it in a sustainable way, bad news. But there are ways to do this in a sustainable way. And researchers are actively exploring how you can get water from the air, as it were. I talked to researchers at the King Abdullah University of Science and Technology in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, about a month or so ago. They've got a very interesting system where they use solar panels, which don't operate very well at uh, high temperatures, but they've built a membrane which is very good at soaking up 
uh, water from air in the desert at night. They grab the water from the air into this sponge-like material, which they then transfer heat into from the solar panels that are making electricity during the day. This keeps the panels cooler and increases their operating efficiency, and in the process drives the water off from this sponge-like material, which is then released into, in this case, greenhouse. So you can actually capture the water and you can use it to grow crops and things. So this is a way in which people are actively looking at ways to to have a very energy-intensive process, but make it as environmentally friendly and as sustainable as possible. And in countries like South Africa, with a lot of sunshine most of the time, actually this is this is one good solution. The other solution to this is better water stewardship. In other words, don't waste it, don't lose it, and when you've got it, don't let it go. Store it. And so people are actively exploring ways to do better water stewardship in countries all over the world, so we don't flush this wonderful stuff down the toilet we recycle more we we reuse and we cleanse better and we effectively safeguard our water supply when we have an abundance so that we don't then run out in the bad times uh, also make better use of the stormwater system right because at the moment whatever water is not captured in the dams there's various municipalities Straight that are going to try and exactly. get off the yep. road as much as possible instead of actually collecting it matthew an important question thank you very much for asking it gola you've called in from kempton park good afternoon what's your question for chris hello good afternoon dr chris and afternoon africa my question is uh, what uh, informs the brain of those people who participate in the, the eating competition where you have to eat so much food <laughs> and then you you beat the others what happens to to you physically can you not uh, collapse and die i watched this i spent the christmas of 2001 in japan Long story, but I went to stay with the relatives of a good friend. And on the television, on Boxing Day, was this food-eating contest. I've never seen the like of this, ever, anywhere before or after. And there was this guy who won, and he just ate 10 kilos of curry in front of everybody, just plates and plates of beef madras on rice. And um, he was just stacking up these plates. He wasn't really fat, and we could not work out how this person was doing this. But the, the answer is that the amount we take into our body is normally rigidly controlled. We have in our brain a structure called the hypothalamus, which sits at the bottom of the brain, and it's in charge of all of the things that we don't consciously worry about. It keeps your heart beating at the right rate. It keeps your blood pressure at the right rate. It keeps you breathing at the right rate. It keeps your hormone cycles right. It keeps you going to sleep and waking up at the right time. It also controls how many calories you put into your body and how hot you are, how you burn that energy off. And it normally rigidly controls how much energy we take into our body in order to make sure that we don't gain excess weight. And it's when that system slips a bit that you do gain or, or, or in some cases lose weight. And, and that's, we know, bad for your health because there is an ideal weight range for a human. So when people who do force feed themselves like this, remember that pate foie gras, the stuff which uh, some people revel in eating, is basically force feeding an animal huge amounts of calories so it gets a fatty liver, just like a person does if they gain too much weight. And then we enjoy eating the liver. The same thing will happen to the person if you overeat relentlessly and you don't burn off those calories, calories in means 
calories around your waistline. In other words, you get flabby. So how these people do this, uh, I don't know, because they're doing themselves harm. How they train themselves to take in all these calories, I don't know. And what the long-term consequences are that they probably don't want to know. So the bottom line is it's probably that some people can just swallow huge amounts of stuff. They probably throw up later. Sorry to anyone who's thinking about having their lunch or afternoon snack right now. But in the long term, this is not going to be good for you because it will lead to you getting too big and that will cause problems like diabetes. So for a bit of fun now and then, not a problem as long as it doesn't make you feel unwell. But I wouldn't do this professionally because I think it probably is going to not end well. Not at all. Gola, thank you for your call. Mohammed. you are in Bedford View. What's your question? Good afternoon. Good afternoon. So are you well? Okay, well? We are. We are very well. Thank you very much. How are you doing? I doesn't have to complain. Thank you. Um, I do know there's a scientific reason behind my question, but I'd like to know, on a Saturday and a Sunday, my kids can get up at 5 o'clock without my assistance, nor the assistance of an alarm. But come Monday morning, they cannot get out of bed. Is there any reason behind this? I am loving the questions today. <laughs> I will listen on the radio. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mohammed. Chris? So many people all nodding enthusiastically. I mean, the cynic in me thinks it's because they've had so much practice between Monday and Friday that come the weekend, they've got it off pat and it's working fine. And uh, it's just that Monday comes and they've forgotten how again. Uh, I mean, that's a slightly flippant answer. The answer is it's motivation, isn't it? And we've all been there in a situation when there is a goal in mind and there's something you really want to do. You find it much easier to do the things that fit that category than the things you don't really want to do and get up on a monday morning drag yourself out early weather might not be very good crowded cars roads buses off to school that you might not like because the first lesson was something you really hate and there's all these reasons to think i think i prefer to stay in bed and as a result the motivation just isn't there but when there's the motivation to get up and do something and uh, you're going to see your friends or going to do something you really want to do we find it easier to dig deep when we have to and I think that's just human nature. It is indeed. Patrick, you've called in from Germiston. What's your question for the Naked Scientist? Good afternoon. Hi, hi guys. Um, it's a question about absolute zero. And um, I know it's almost impossible to get uh, to absolute zero because it takes so much energy. But theoretically, if you made a, a glass room and cooled it down to absolute zero and you shone a torch from one side of the room to the other, would that light trickle down the inside and form a pool on the floor? Well, I think the thing is it would no longer be at absolute zero because light is energy and you'd be putting energy into the system. So the system would no longer be at absolute zero. And this is the quandary, isn't it? We know that funny things happen when the temperature gets very, very low. As you get down towards what we dub absolute zero, you are uh, seeing atoms form different or they behave very differently. And as you get towards that, you get what they call the Bose-Einstein condensate. And I've talked to a few researchers who actually work on this kind of stuff, and weird stuff begins to happen. The atoms behave not as individual entities anymore, but they begin to behave as though they're one atom working together. And people were doing really interesting things, shining light through super cold clouds of cesium atoms and seeing that the speed of light slows right down and the atoms all behave as though they are interacting simultaneously with those photons. So I, I, obviously we can't get to absolute zero, as you quite rightly said, because the minute you put some energy into the system in order to observe the system, it's no longer at absolute zero and it would take a huge amount of energy to get there anyway. 
So I think the answer is, it, I, I don't know what would happen if you could somehow put light particles into a system at absolute zero, because light is basically particles vibrating, and they can't vibrate if they're at absolute zero because motion has stopped. So I don't know how you'd really get to the bottom of what would yeah. happen. I think the answer is there wouldn't be any energy in there because it was at absolute zero, so it would, wouldn't, yeah. have any, wouldn't have any light in it, if you see what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting question, Patrick. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, John, you are in Harangua. What's your question for the Naked Scientist? Hello, must I ask a question again? Yes, please. Go ahead, John. You live on air. All right, all right. All right. Uh, my question is the, the, the vagina of an elephant is facing down. <laughs> now, how does the, the gentleman go about fertilizing hair, man? Does it have to insert, insert it in, in here, or, or how, how do they go about? Very well, the um, is National Geographic question. They must succeed, because there, there are elephants around, and there have been for a very long time. So obviously these animals are quite good at, at making sure they get where they need to go. Uh, it all comes down to anatomy. And it's the position in which an animal mates. It has anatomy which is relevant to and appropriate for that mating position. Now, elephants mount, so the male elephant stands up on the back of the female element with its front legs. And it is appropriately sized and positioned so that it achieves the penetration it needs to. Because you need to get the semen inside the vagina so that it can then go up and fertilize the eggs up inside. So it does have to make sure that it hits the spot but the animals are quite good at doing that because if they weren't, there wouldn't be any of them around. It would be a retrograde step for evolution. They would be quite quickly deleted from the gene pool if they had anatomy that didn't fit together. And I suppose a reminder, Chris, here, that many of the animals in the animal kingdom, uh, I suppose, mate for purposes of procreation as opposed to pleasure, right? They would do it because there is a need for offspring to be created. Well, they have a deep-rooted, deep-seated want to mate, but is that because they really enjoy the process and they end up with offspring as a consequence of that? Most, most animals that we've ever studied do things that they find pleasurable more and they do things they don't like less. So uh, getting sort of electrocuted by an electric fence, an animal only has to do that a couple of times, it steers clear of the fence in future. Uh, getting a bowl of food, it likes that, it does things that lead to food elicitation more. So therefore mating, I think, probably is pleasurable and fun and nice and fulfilling for those animals, which is why they do it. They don't do it because they want to make babies, because I don't think they connect doing that with making the babies. They just connect doing that with it's, it's innate to their behavior and they quite enjoy it. It has good outcome for them, makes them feel good, part of bonding and so on, because it releases other love chemicals in the bloodstream, which bonds animals together and so on. So I think they, they do it because it feels good and has a positive psychological impact on them but it's in us that we have connected the act of sex with reproduction because mm. we understand that there is uh, one thing happening and then another outcome later. No, fair enough. Uh, Zonia, you've called from uh, the north of Pretoria. Good afternoon. What's your question for Chris? Uh, good afternoon. My question is uh, the moon goes around the, uh, the earth, the earth goes around the sun, the sun goes around the black hole. What does the black hole go around? And secondly, what is plant density? Uh, just to be clear about your second question, Zonia? Uh, what is plank density? Plank density. 
Yes. Okay. Okay. Cool. I, I don't know the answer to the second question, but the answer to the first question, which is, you're quite right. The moon is in orbit around the Earth. The Earth is in orbit around the Sun. The Sun is a star which is orbiting in our galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy, which has got about a hundred billion stars or so in it, and is about a hundred thousand light years across. It's orbiting a supermassive black hole at the centre of our galaxy. But our galaxy is also orbiting, and galaxies like it are all taking a giant sweep around space. So they're all going through space. And we, we know this is the case because we can look at the movements of stars. They also, they also bob up and down a bit as they go around, but they're a bit like a merry-go-round, I suppose. They are all in motion. Nothing is static. Nothing is in one place. Even a, even a galaxy in the universe is not in one position. They're all moving relative to each other, describing a giant loop around our patch of the universe. Interesting. Sonia, thank you very much for your call. Uh, Thomas, in Hammanskral, what's your question for Chris? Good afternoon. Good afternoon, sir. Uh, I'd like to find out uh, why, where does time comes from and when did humans find out what time is used for and what is, uh, who came up with the name time and who synchronized it as we use it today? Good question. Chris? Hi, Thomas. Well, the answer to this is that almost certainly um, our ancestors were very cognizant of time passing because their life depended on it. If you lived in parts of the world where there were seasons, where there was clearly a distinction between when there were times of abundance and times of, of much less abundance in terms of resources, heat, water and so on, you needed to know what time of year it was similar for many animals they need to know what time of year it is so that they can either bulk up or feed on the right sorts of things and then move before the winter comes or in you know early human ancestors case build up fuel build up reserves protect themselves or move in order to get the best of, of the environment wherever they move to so there would have been a vague notion of time for a really long time way back in history because people's lives depended on it so an awareness of time it was certainly present then then you've got the archaeological evidence for time and our ancestors certainly you know thousands of years ago were very clearly aware of time they were doing um, geometrical experiments they were aware of the shape and size of the earth and how it had a relationship with the sun and how long those processes took they realized that they could uh, use the position of the sun in the sky to predict time and what time of day it was and they worked out roughly how many time how many days of uh, the year there would be they had calendars and then there was the kind of more uh, modern concept of time where we actually have time keeping and time pieces and really we owe that and the unification of time around Greenwich Mean Time to the seafarers who thanks to watches like and clocks like those invented by Harrison the clockmaker who enabled accurate gauge of engaging of where we were on the earth's surface thanks to being able to tell the time and therefore work out where the stars should be different celestial objects sun and so on where you were around the Earth's surface. That meant that then there became a need to have a standardized system of time. And that's when Greenwich Mean Time actually got it conceived. And then seafarers would work out what time zone they were on relative to Greenwich Mean Time. So that's when we then divided the Earth up into almost like segments of an orange, which were the lines of longitude. That was in the 1700s. Oh, wow. As early as that. Yeah, I mean, Harrison invented the Harrison 4 or 5 watch and clock to enable accurate seafaring in the 1700s. 
Amazing. Chris, I learn something new every time I have a conversation with you. Thank you very much for your time with us this That's afternoon. Right. Good to catch up again, Africa. So it's been a little while. So um, till the next time on the subject of time. Indeed. Uh, Chris Smith, the Naked Scientist, Chair of Science at the University of Cambridge. You can find him on the Naked Scientists, plural, dot com uh, for any uh, and all rather interesting and exciting science-related facts.